This is a sermon podcast from Ashland First United Methodist Church in Ashland, Oregon. Visit us online at ashlandmethodist.org for more sermons like this, church information, and how to get involved. Ashland Methodist, a community of open hearts, open minds, and open doors. So I have <clears throat> this very, very vivid memory of myself. As a nine-year-old child, uh, my parents, my mother was born in Aberdeen, Scotland, uh, and my father was British, and we uh, had emigrated as a family to Canada by the time I was nine. But everybody went back. We went back to visit the homeland, you might say, and my parents rented a caravan, uh, which is just a mobile home, right, uh, the RV. And we were driving it around the Yorkshire countryside. And I think we've all seen pictures of Yorkshire. Occasionally, uh, BBC has offered us up a program like uh, All Things Bright and Beautiful, or uh, where we see this countryside. And it's very much rolling hills and pasture land and many, many, many sheep, ancient rock walls that were piled up long, long ago. It can get freezing there. And there isn't very many homes, so that it is very expansive, right? It can just feel like you stand there and you see these hills and you see these little tiny tracks of of, uh, fencing, which is just these stone walls, and you could be transported very easily across time. We are now, but we are always, all at once. And I was only nine, so for me it was all about the sheep. The sheep were very interesting. And uh, we stopped for the night uh, to camp. And we just camped in some farmer's field, and the sheep were very curious about us. And my younger sister was not at all curious about the sheep and spent most of the time crying and running away. Um, But I thought it was all fascinating. And then when the sun went down, this was... It got dark. It got really dark. I don't think there must have been much of a moon at all because I don't remember seeing the moon. I remember lying on my back and looking up at the sky. There's nowhere else to look. It was dark, very dark. And at first, I had the experience that I have been trained to have, right? The sky's up there, Earth is here, and I'm this lovely little human in the middle, and my world is really about me and what I'm looking at. I'm nine, right? And then it was like there was this shift. And as I'm laying there looking up at the stars, it was like the distance between us just evaporated, as if the spheres just collapsed. And I wasn't looking at the sky separate from where I was or who I was. I was part of what everything was part of. The stars were here, right at my nose, touching me throughout. My body was part. Suddenly, I am a celestial being no different than all those lights in the sky. I belong to the universe. I am in the sphere of sky just like they are. I'd never forgotten that. And it shifted my thinking. 
I was always a spiritual child, you can imagine, somebody who ends up a pastor, probably at some point, bumped into something they could not explain. And moments like that have a way of claiming us. And I might have spent my life determined to be an astronaut. You know, we all, we all process these things differently, right? If I was a true adventurer, I think astronaut would have been my, you know, maybe that would have called me there so that I could get in one of those rocket ships and figure out how they worked. Maybe I would be a welder at NASA putting the plates together one at a time. Maybe I would have been a photographer straining the lenses, trying to perfect them, polish the lenses so I could see those stars that were and weren't so far away. There are folks that do these things. Somehow, they stepped into that work. For me, I'm inclined to think on the spiritual level and mystic level, and for me, it was all about existence. Like, whoa. But I was nine, so really, after I fell asleep and woke up again, it was about the sheep. I haven't forgotten, though. And when I hear stories like creation and when I hear uh, theologies that place God far away from us, I, I wonder about that. How far, how external is God? When we talk about baptism as where the Spirit of God literally comes into our bodies and inhabits us, how external is that? Not very, not very at all. And we struggle to use language to explain this closeness and this farness all at once because clearly the stars are millions and millions of light years away. They're not close and you do not want them close, right? We, the little that we know about the stars is they are hot, right? And the ones that have collapsed, they're like giant vacuum cleaners. Uh, I used to tease my son, no end. I'm going to tell a story on my son here. It's really telling a story on me because he's here today. But he was just fascinated with the physics of the, of the universe. It's fascinating myself. I'm fascinated by it. I, we don't always agree, but... So the black hole thing came into conversation. And so I used to tease him. I wanted a black hole in the garage so I could use it as an extra storage space. <laughs> and that everything could just get sucked into it and wait there for me to come and collect it again. Of course, it doesn't work that way, but wouldn't that be cool? <laughs> right? I'm right about this. I know I'm right about this. <laughs> but our creation myths are ways of us puny humans trying to figure out what happened. What happened? How did we get here? Has anybody else had an experience like I had with the stars? Where suddenly it's like, yeah, like the boundaries of who we are get just busted wide open. So uh, in the Egyptian myths, there's of course many myths. But one of the Egyptian myths has the Egyptian gods rising out of the water, kind of like Aphrodite in the Greek myths. Only Aphrodite is just one goddess. In this case, we've got the, the god rising out. This great mound rises up out of the waters, and up comes the god. So this god isn't created first. 
The waters are first. And then we have the Babylonians who have truly, sorry to our dearest Babylonians who might hear this and feel very offended, but it's very brutal and violent and horrible. We literally have gods at war with each other, violently harming each other, and out of the remains of that comes the world. Now, I think that you must be a very traumatized people to imagine that that is what brought forth. One of our dogmas, one of our teachings in the church is that creation came out of nothing, ex nihilo. But I wonder about that. If we already have the water, the tehom, and God is somehow already present, how is that nothing? And certainly when the Hebrews sat down to write these stories, they didn't write them out of nothing. They wrote them out of their understanding of what they had grown up with and heard and what the wise ones had read in the hieroglyphics and in the Babylonian about what creation was. They wrote referring to that. It's not isolated as if there was one lone sage in the middle of the desert who had never seen another human being and suddenly writes this. It was written in dialogue and conversation, conversation with many peoples. And so we still have the water. But we also have this sort of interrelationship of the water and God and the Spirit all at once, as if they somehow are belonging together. Some of the uh, theology from some of our leading uh, feminist theologians, they notice that the word tehom for the waters is gendered female in the Hebrew. And they wonder if there isn't in some ancient way some memory of a more balanced God than the one that became a king. But I think there's room for many ways, many ways. Remember that after creation, there's a great flood, and we get a renewed people, just a family, Noah's family, and they build this great tower, the Tower of Babel, and they try to make one culture and one language and one people. And what does God do with that? <sighs> Scatters them. Go. Go be different from each other. Go be different from each other. Speak different languages. Learn different things. We're not limited in ways so often that we believe we are. So, one of the things to consider when we look at this scripture is that we're talking about creation, and we're talking about creation on the fourth day, and what have we just created? The sun and the moon and the stars. But on the first day, what did God create? Light. So, where did that come from? And we've talked about that for a couple of weeks a little bit, touching on this. There's already light. God did not create the, moon, the sun for light on the first day. God created the light of God on the first day, the light of life, a light that is good. So what is he creating on the fourth day? We already have plants and seeds. 
So we're not talking photosynthesis here, right? Something else important is being created here, and that is order. So this order of these celestial bodies being set in their courses. The sun comes up for sunrise, and it treks its journey across the heavens, and it sets at night, and it does that every single day. God creates order, calendars, festivals, ways of marking time, rhythms of life, rhythms of nighttime, a moon that expands and contracts and sometimes shines brightly and sometimes is dark. And the rituals and the festivals every month that mark that time. This is a key part of what happens in creation, that home that we talked about, those waters, chaotic. And in the Hebrew mind, now the Greeks picked this up as cosmos, and they had a whole different understanding of existence and order than the Hebrews did. So we're going to go pull what the Hebrews were thinking, and for Hebrews, things need to be useful. One of the translations for love your neighbor is be useful to your neighbor. They believe in usefulness. You're created, created for a purpose. And so this formless void isn't so much nothing as it's nothing because it's not formed. It's just wasteland kind of. It's hard. You don't have words for it. Can you, can you see it in your mind, though? It's just this, like, potentiality is the way um, that philosophers like to name it. But that's kind of like a sad and soggy word. It doesn't say anything, right? But out of this, to home, God creates, makes meaning, purpose. Well, if it's going to run, it's going to need legs. If it's going to be alive, it's going to need a body. It's going to need to breathe somehow. It's going to need to eat somehow. We get order out of this. And it's beautiful, is it not? Look at your neighbor. Look at how beautifully made they are for the purpose for which they are made. Ian, raise your hands up. See? Aren't those beautiful? And think what they do at that piano. God said, this guy's going to need some hands. Right? Right. I, I kind of like mine, too. They're pretty handy. But I have seen people who are born differently do other beautiful things with other parts of their bodies. We are beautifully made just as we are. There's a dark side to this, right? When we start deciding what is order, we start sometimes forgetting that hierarchies are not always helpful. So I was in one of my seminary classes, and we were seeing like the old charts from the, from the classical, and it's like a pyramid with the top creatures on top and the bottom creatures on the bottom. And man, gendered male, is at the top, and women get to share the second row with the whales. Oh. 
you can imagine there was quite a bit of joking uh, about that. But this, these are ways that we silly, scrawny humans attempt to make under, and make and understand the order that God intended. And that can weight us in some really tricky waters because those charts exist either in our heads or on paper in a lot of places that aren't helpful where we get to decide who is more important and who isn't, whose life matters and whose life doesn't, which child should be educated and which child shouldn't. And we start making decisions that we don't even realize we are making, or sometimes we do, that actually end up being very harmful. Instead of honoring God's good, beautiful creation where everything is created out of the same stuff for purposes of God in the beautiful way, we start saying, well, um, that goes on that shelf, and that goes on that shelf, and we're going to, you know, women, whales, women, whales, you know, it's kind of the same thing. We're just going to put them right here. <laughs> and frankly, it's kind of not okay. It's kind of not okay. And so we have to be mindful of this. As Christian people, one of the first most radical things we did was declare that we were all equal. We used to share the kiss of peace. So in, in, uh, in this particular ancient culture, and you still see this, remember how George Bush like held hands with a Saudi prince and how much trouble he got into that? For? Well, this is an, a sign of honor. So a kiss on the cheek, the person with a little less honor kisses on the cheek. If you really don't have honor, you don't look up. You can get down right on your face. In, in, um, Jesus had no honor in his, uh, his... He does because of who he is. But in his cultural milieu, as the son of an unmarried girl from Galilee, oh, please, he would have been expected to have his face in the dirt. You're not allowed to speak until spoken to. You're not allowed to make eye contact. There's rules about what your order is, what your honor rank is. Christians blew this apart. They used to kiss on the mouth. That's the sign of the total equality. So I would go over to Megan as an equal, and I would kiss her on the mouth. I won't do that, don't worry. It's weird to us now, right? And like a few hundred years after those early Christians got started, you, hear, you start seeing in the literature all this anxiety over why is everybody always kissing on the mouth? I think that's not really a good thing. I don't think we should do that anymore. Talk about worship wars. <laughs> so as Christian people, we should be mindful of this radical equality that we share with each other. Always be mindful of this. And we can make choices about how we choose to do this, too. We can choose... Uh, John Wesley talks about the stars and the moon and the sun in the terms of this sense of order. And he recognizes that these beings are, uh, these, the sun and the moon are set in their courses and that we are not. We may have things about us that are set. We have legs and arms and brains and mouths. But we are given a lot more orbit, if you will, a lot more range. And it matters what decisions you make in that. As a little girl looking up at those stars, I did not know any of this. I did not know that the ancients would have seen each star as a spirit and every light as the eye of a spirit. 
I did not know, I, well, I did know that they were thought of as angels sometimes. I'd read enough books. But what God gifts us with our bodies, God gifts us also with destiny. It is the destiny of that sun to rise every day. And isn't it beautiful and to set? It is the destiny of the moon to rotate and shine the reflection of the sun back down to the earth. The stars born in great nebulas, beautiful golds and greens of every color to come together to be a star, to collapse down, exploding first, become a black hole. Mystery after mystery after mystery. We, each of us, have destiny given by God. All of us. We are given the opportunity to live as God has drawn us to live. And we have the opportunity as Christian people to take that, that next piece, recognizing we have destiny together, that what we do matters every day in how we treat each other, and how to burst open some of the worldly stuff, the women and the whales, and recognize the whales are awesome, and women are awesome, and the ones at the bottom, the creepy crawlies, are awesome. We all have a different destiny, and order is beautiful when you don't pick it up and clout somebody with it. We can live into that beauty of order, noticing ourselves within, watching the sun come up, and rise, and down it goes. Another day, what did you do with it? The sun comes up. Another day, what did you do? What did you do with it? Did you use your body the way God wanted you to? When you ran, did you feel God in your legs, and your body, and your breath? When you sat down to pray, did you feel the call on your life? to say hello to somebody who maybe needed a hello? Have you dared to see God in your life as the sun is setting? I invite you to do so. I invite you to be nine again, to realize that the space between you and the sky is not so big, that you are a celestial being affixed to this celestial rock. And if you listen really hard enough, you can feel and hear the sound of the flock. <laughs> because we are God's sheep. We are God's beloved. Praise be to God. Amen. <laughs>